My name is Dr. Joe McVeigh. I am chair of the Partners Working Group for the XR for Rehab Collaboration and Innovation Network. Part of our mission at XR for Rehab is to build a network of researchers, technologists, SMEs and innovators that will revolutionise rehabilitation through the use of technology. If you would like to be part of this revolution, please follow the link on our website and join the XR for Rehab Collaboration and Innovation Network. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast series, which will introduce you to some of the thought leaders, researchers and innovators in XR for Rehab. I hope you'll enjoy the conversations and discussions. My name is Dennis Martin. I'm Professor of Rehabilitation at Teesside University and I'm part of the XR for Rehab Consortium and I'm here with Dan Harvey. Dan, good to be with you. Yes, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a physiotherapist uh, by background. Um, I consider myself uh, a pain scientist uh, as well as a clinical physiotherapist and I'm currently the uh, Program Director of the Master of Musculoskeletal and Sports Physiotherapy course at the University of South Australia. All right, that's a lot of abbreviations. <laughs> probably translate into something, something a bit interesting. Can I ask you, I, w- I want to get into some of the um, sort of VR, XR stuff, mm. um, which is kind of the reason we're here, but I'd be interested to hear how you got here. Yeah. So a number of things you said there. How, how, how did you get into physio? What attracted you into physiotherapy? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Do you know, I had um, I was unfortunate enough to have cancer as a as a fifteen year old. Wow. Uh, osteosarcoma had a knee replacement as a result. So I just had this personal engagement with the with the profession. Yeah. Um, so that really sent me down this particular uh, path. Um, had uh, just inspiring pain science content in my undergraduate curriculum. Uh, and so I guess it's that that directed me down the, the path of, of musculoskeletal and chronic pain right. uh, in my clinical work and also in my research uh-huh. work. Yeah. So it, you, uh, that's interesting that you got interested in pain science in your undergraduate career yeah. because that's not well maybe it's more common now certainly yeah. in my time that was not really a, a part of the, the yeah. curriculum pain was a, a quick thing might have been talked about mm. was that unique mm. to where you studied it was yes I was in a very unique time and place uh-huh. I think so uh, at the time uh, a character by the name of David Butler right. uh, taught directly into the the physio program he's the the co-author of explain pain yeah of course and the founder of noi group um and has worked you know actually he was the he was the person who inspired Lorimer mosley to become a, a pain scientist uh, and it was him who later became the supervisor of my phd so right uh, i had you know i had that direct influence and inspiration from david butler but also uh down the line from uh possibly uh the you know if we ever read david butler's bio (laughs) and his his influence and impact on the world uh, a significant part of that is going to be because of his impact on Lorimer, i think Uh, okay right right yeah 
if you were a racehorse, they'd say you had a good bloodline. <laughs> it's, interesting. it's interesting how that um, knowledge through personal contact can sort of yeah. cascade and inspire. Yeah. Right, so you did, did your physio. Did you go straight into clinical practice then? I did, yeah. yes. Yep. How long yep. for? Um, so I went actually straight into rural South Australia, yeah, yeah. Um, quite uh, reasonably remote actually, and mm -hmm. um, so I guess that promoted a sense of uh, in independence. As I was out there in the country with limited support, uh, managing some pretty complex chronic pain conditions. Yeah. Um, from there, I did another couple of years of full-time practice, private practice in the city, in Adelaide, South Australia. And then I continued to work clinically part-time while I did um, Master of Musculoskeletal and Sports Physiotherapy. That's a clinically focused okay. uh, course, the one that I'm now uh, director of. Um, and it was at the conclusion of that where actually I'd again had uh, David Butler as a uh, the coordinator of a the pain science yes. curriculum through that course as well where um oh, and you know another coincidence as i was completing that at the same time as Lorimer mosley moved from oxford university back to australia and took up a, a position at uh, where i was studying yeah um so it was just I, I couldn't not knock on his door and say would you take me on as a as a phd student uh -huh. in the in the chronic pain space Right. So you went that path and then you did your PhD. Was that was that a full-time or was that part-time PhD? I did it uh, full-time. Full-time, full -time, yeah. Right, right. And what was, what yeah. was the title of your thesis? The title of my uh, thesis was Investigating the theoretic, three, Theoretical Assumptions of the Imprecision Hypothesis of Chronic Pain. That's one to clear the bar <laughs> with quickly. Yeah. yeah in fact, I can I can summarize I can summarize the <laughs> hypothesis. In fact, I may be one of the few people who can summarize the imprecision hypothesis in a few sentences. Go on, then. It's, a, <laughs> it's a theory about uh, a theory that attempts to explain chronic pain yeah. as a as a, a response that's been learned through a classical conditioning process, and the, the imprecision hypothesis uh, comes in because. Uh, it might be that some chronic pain is not just a, a learned response, but it's one that becomes non-specific. So you normally when you would learn a, a response, like uh -huh. Pavlov's dogs learn to salivate to a bell, yeah. uh, they, don't, they shouldn't also learn to salivate to a horn or the sound of a car. Right. Uh, but generalization is a learning process that tends to cause... Uh, what you learn as a response to one thing to generalize to, to similar things. So the hypothesis has these two components, one that chronic pain might be a sort of learned or classically conditioned response, and two, that it might be a response that overgeneralizes and becomes triggered by more and more things uh -huh. as a result of uh, um, untamed generalization. Okay. Right. That's probably right. more than a few sentences. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's a long <laughs> thesis. How long did it take you? Uh, so in Australia, um, PhDs, everyone aims to do their PhD in three years. Yeah. Most end up taking four to, to five. And yeah, I, yeah. No, I almost met the clean three years. and turned wow. out to be about three years and six weeks. Yeah, that was yeah. not dissimilar to mine. Um, I took quite a while, actually. I think I enjoyed 
studying mm. and being a student. Um, I always say there's, there's a good friend of mine, uh, Nicky Adams, who was kind of pioneer in that mm. uh, in that field in physio, mm. and I've never forgiven her. She started after me <laughs> and finished before me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. Here's a question for you. Right, you've had luxury was a word I was thinking of. It's not a luxury. Um, you, you had. Um, whatever the word is, you had the influence of David Butler mm. and you had the influence of Lorimer Mosley. It wouldn't be unheard of for sort of great influencers like that to actually smother people and maybe narrow their thinking. I don't get that from you. Can you sort of give any glimpses, insights into mm. how they influenced you mm. mm -hmm. with enough wisdom and latitude mm. to let you develop mm. your own expertise. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there are those uh, those mentors and PhD supervisors who are very prescriptive about, yeah. uh, about uh, the projects and uh, specific ways that they should be uh, executed and written up. Um, I didn't get that from Lorimer at all. I yeah, think what, yeah. I, what I got was much more of a, a, a mentor, a coach, a guide than, mm -hmm. um, than a, um, a dictator, if you will. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess that, that enabled me to, I guess, develop my creativity and independent um, thinking. Uh, with him in my corner um, the whole time. Yes. Um, yeah. I've, I've, it's a particular skill or a particular attribute, I think, yeah. of somebody very comfortable in their own elevated position mm. and high level of knowledge. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. So you've gone through that. How did you, I'm, I'm just sort of, there's a long journey, lots of um, very mm. interesting things, but how did you end up, how did you take the road into working in this mm. area, yep. virtual reality, yeah. XR, new tech, what yeah. brought you into that? I guess, it's, again, it's another product of, of timing of things, uh -huh. really. You know, I started my... Uh, PhD, I think it was 2012, around the time that Facebook bought Oculus and injected a billion dollars and then and suddenly we had affordable, high-quality consumer VR. Yeah. Um, and so I was, you know, as a tech, uh, shall we say, a, 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 a tech enthusiast on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was aware of that at the same time as having these research questions related to the imprecision hypothesis so that yes. you know our question was could pain be a learned response you know that's sort of the f the f at the foundation that was that was the question i was looking at in yeah. my in my thesis and so one thing we thought was look if pain can could be a learned response it must the one thing it must link to is movement and so you know if you turn your head for example and you get pain at 60 degrees every time. Yeah. And that happens a thousand times. Uh, and you turn your head the thousand and first time. Yeah. 
what's the likely outcome regardless of what's happening in your tissues yes maybe pain could be a learned response independent of what's happening in your tissues okay yeah so i had that question and i went to um ross smith the uh, one of the leading uh, virtual reality technologists at my university and i posed uh -huh. this problem and he directed me to uh, this concept uh, i think again it might have come from mel slater's lab in um, in Spain, of redirected walking. This idea that we could track your movement in the real world and translate it to a different amount of movement in the virtual world. Yes. I thought, this is perfect because we can take that person who's had pain at 50 degrees a thousand times, yeah. we can make it look to them like they're turning their head 50 degrees when it's actually 40 degrees or 60 degrees. Yeah. And we can say, does pain change if they think their movement is different? If they think they're moving towards or further from where their pain normally comes on? Yeah. Uh, so that was actually the first study of my thesis. And we showed that if you manipulate how far it looks like someone's turned their head, 20 degrees either way, you get a 6 or 7% change in their pain threshold. So this, you know, showed that the, you know, the visual signals of movement are somehow triggers or influences of whether or not there'll be, there'll be pain. And yeah. it worked, actually worked both ways. If people, if it looked like they were turning their head further than they actually were, their pain came on sooner. Right. Uh, but they it, were moving the same. Uh, well, well uh, not exactly. So, well, yeah, so they uh, the way we would explain it is uh, independent of what was happening in their tissues. We were able to yeah. okay. uh, yeah. um, uh, influence their pain by changing the visual signals uh, yes. of movement. So our outcome was actually, how far can you turn your head before pain comes on? Yeah. And they would turn there and stop and we would take a measure. Um, and that point at which their pain came on changed uh, uh, as a product of, of, of uh, how far it looked like they moved. Uh -huh. Um, so I guess that was kind of study one. There's and something my first beautifully simple about how you pose that question. Yes. To get a very, very powerful answer, which is, there's an art there, which yeah. I like. I like. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah, there, was a, there was this whole yeah. simplicity in the, in, mm. the, in the design and, and, the, and the question yeah, yeah. there even that I don't know I've replicated before or since. Actually, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my my work with VR has gone in various different directions since then, um, but that was kind of a magical um, collaboration um, that has inspired my my work since. I know you're very much um, a collaborator with Lorimer and mm. um, that, that sort mm. of group. You've just done a book mm. together. Yep. Which I have to confess I haven't read yet. <laughs> I will do. I will do. Do you elaborate on VR and XR in that? Is there, is there a chapter on that? Not directly. Um, but um, the concepts in there are informed by uh -huh. my understanding of perception, which has largely been derived from my, my work with virtual reality, which you know we probably don't think of it this way, but it... It's a kind of an ultimate perception altering tool yeah, yeah, that you yeah. can replace your real world with a digital one and feel like you're really there. 
um, really says something about how our perception works. Um, and the same is true that you can uh, jump inside an avatar and that kind of feels like you. It's kind of a, it's kind of a feature of, of the way our perception works. Have you done that as a participant? Uh, as a participant, have I done that with participants? No, yourself. Oh. Have you done that, taken the sort of the form of the avatar yeah. and experienced that? Yes, like, yes, many times. Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah. Explain how it feels. Because um, I haven't done it. I've heard people okay. talk about it. I haven't done yeah. it. Haven't done it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we often ask it. We often ask people questions like, to what uh, degree does the virtual body feel like your body and we'll get people to rate it on a zero to ten scale um and you sort of know that it's not you but you know for me i might say a seven out of ten because uh, the the visual representation of me is where my real body is it moves in sync with my real body and so um you know in virtual reality we have this term voluntary suspension of belief you you know it's not you but it feels it does feel like you it's very peculiar and and it's even peculiar to have those two that you know it's not you it's like visual illusions auditory illusions even when you know there's something going on there you can't stop the illusion Um, and so i think embodiment's kind of the same so so i guess the first from a first person perspective the first peculiar thing is that even though you know it's not you it feels like you and it acts like you the second peculiar thing is that um you feel in some way and even start to act something like the characteristics of the avatar right uh, uh, itself um this uh, has been termed the proteus effect yes i'm a big fan of mel slater's work and um you know some studies he's been involved with show that um, if you become an African-American person and s- play the drums in virtual reality, then you'll play a more Afro kind of beat you yeah. know, than if you adopt uh, an avatar that's a white person. Um, if you adopt the body of Albert Einstein and do cognitive tasks, you'll perform better than if you adopt someone else. That's bizarre. Um, uh, yeah, so a, a kind of a neat effect and yeah, has inspired yeah. some of my, my work as well. I've sort of heard some parallels um, when you hear actors talking about really yeah. getting into the role. Yeah. And when they finish that bit of acting, they yeah. still sometimes have that yes. embodiment, perhaps. Yes. It must be really powerful because, you know, when you say, you know it's not you, mm-hmm. then you above all people must know even more that it's not you but you still feel as if it is yeah interesting yeah interesting i had the pleasure this morning of meeting your young daughter Hmm. and this is an easy question it's a really hard one to answer but um worth a try when joy is in her 20s uh-huh. i suppose two questions then one do you think vr for rehab will still be a thing mm-hmm. and if you think it'll still be a thing 
what the hell is it going to look like? <laughs> Great question. Um, all right, yes, it'll definitely still be a thing. I'm absolutely confident right. about that. Um, I'm confident that it, it uh, will find niches where it's really useful. And I'm confident that we'll also find plenty of areas where we realize we can do things much better in the real world. Okay. Yeah. I think there'll be this, uh, there'll be this um, knowledge, I guess, around uh, where virtual reality really fits. Uh-huh. And there'll be particular attention, I think, on what it is that we can do in virtual reality that we can't do as good or better in the real world. I think always there's, you know, there's a lot of excitement, I think, around virtual reality mm-hmm. and it, uh, to some extent a tendency to look at what we're already doing in the real world that we can do in virtual reality and hopefully with a few tricks to see where we can do those things even better. Um, but I, what excites me is the is is the kind of therapies that just aren't possible in the real world that are enabled by Yay. this virtual reality tool. And you know, I think that um, you know came up in question time in uh, my talk yes. today. This idea of whether things that you learn, whether it be motor learning or uh, um, uh, something you learn through an education app or something you learn in some other kind of brain training whether that would translate from the virtual world to the real world yeah, yeah yeah i think we need to know a lot more about about that um and i think um yeah i think we'll get we'll get good at we'll get better at translating but i think there might also be some things that there's just no substitute for real world right therapies that's yeah. int- that's comforting comforting to hear that i think <laughs> what, what, what do you think the tech's going to look like Mm. the tech the tech's really good at the minute the headsets yeah the headsets are ugly <laughs> an ugly design doesn't yeah it, it, it doesn't yeah. last what's going to do yeah. go into contact lenses yeah. implants or is that it's hard for me to imagine getting to the the scale of a contact lens when you know you need a certain amount of weight for batteries yes. and graphics processing yeah. um, and lenses and all of these things. You know, I, I certainly hope they get lighter and lighter. I, um, I now have the, the Oculus Pro, you know, and that's starting uh-huh. to sl- slimmer. Some of the, the, they're better balanced now because the battery and maybe some of the other hardware's moved to the back of the device rather than the front. Yeah. Um, you know, it's more comfortable, but, um, and as passionate as I am about the technology, I don't really want to spend more than about 15 or 20 minutes in it. Right, yeah. Or yeah. I start to think, oh, yeah, I'm starting to feel the weight of it or I'm starting to feel a bit giddy or a bit strange. Uh-huh. I think uh, if it's, it, you know, I reckon by the time Joy's 20, it might be half the weight and slimmer and, you know, at a point where people are comfortable wearing it for an hour or so. But... Um, Maybe I'm getting old, but <laughs> I, I find it hard to see a future where people want to wear this yeah, yeah. for long periods. Um, but it's you know it's close. It's close to getting to a point where it's it's comfortable for almost everyone for you know that fifteen to thirty minute yeah. p- 
period of time. I'm someone who's quite sensitive to motion sickness, and so I've sort of journeyed with virtual reality from the point of, oh, yeah, I don't want to be in this to too long, to, oh, yes, if you create me the right app where there's not too much optical flow that's not matching my uh, vestibular inputs, I'm comfortable and I'm happy to be there for a fairly decent period of time. All right. Well, Um, I'll tell you what. When it's Joy's 20th birthday, <laughs> we'll meet again in Amsterdam and play this recording back and see how, see how close you were to predicting the future. Hopefully in this beautiful room which, uh, yes. with a scotch, perhaps. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, um, I think we'll wrap up with that, Dan. It's been lovely talking to you and we'll con- continue the conversation over the days. Likewise. Thank you Look very much. Look forward to it. Thanks, All Dennis. Right.